0: Thank you for joining us. You're listening to a message from Doxa Church's Identity Series. In this series, we're learning about our baptismal identity as family, servants, and missionaries. At Doxa, we believe we're called to love one another like family, serve one another as Christ did, and to bear witness to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. For more resources, please visit doxa-church.com.
1: Luke eight forty through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: We are in week two of our identity series. Uh, this is something that is kind of core to who we are here at Doxa, and uh, it, it, it's formed out of the idea that uh, when we are baptized into Christ, we take on a baptismal identity. So when we are baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so uh, we we take on the identity of God in our baptism. And so uh, last week uh, Jeff talked about the fact that God is our Father and. That he has adopted us as his children, which means our identity is that of children of God, or the family of God, and then we live out that family identity. So it's all formed on these four questions that we ask all the time, that's kind of a basis for how we do theology, which is, who is God? What has He done? Who am I as a result of who God is and what he's done? And then what do I do to live out of that identity? And they, they flow together, right? So God's character is, uh, is static. Like God is who God is, never changes. And, and he always works out of his character. So God's action is always a reflection of his character. And then God's action, both in creation and in redemption, gives us our identity. So we are, as a result of who God is and what God's done, and then we are to live out of that identity. So uh, that's kind of the flow, and I think it's super important to root ourselves each and every time in the full flow of those four questions. Because I think we have a temptation to really only want to answer the last question, if any, and just go, yeah, 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 tell me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I I get it. Like, God's God, and he did some stuff, and I've got an identity. I don't know what that means exactly, but come on, man. Like, just tell me what I got to do so that I can go do it or not do it, but at least I just know this is what I'm supposed to do so I can check the box and you can get off my back and whatever, like, just tell me what to do. And in previous series, um, I've called that fourth question thinking, and it's death. It's absolute death. To to be a fourth question person is death. And, and I, w- I wanna show you why. Fourth question thinking leads to both legalism, which is the Bible term for the worst version of religion, or it leads to what we'll call liberalism or, or, or license or just kind of do whatever you want, right? They're actually two sides of the same coin and they are the result of asking the questions in reverse. So here's how it goes. So as a, a legalist, as a good religious person, I would say, I'm supposed to do good things. And if I do good things, that makes me a good person. And if I'm a good person, then I deserve to be blessed by God because God is the kind of God that just blesses good people who do good things, which makes God essentially a vending machine, right? So as long as I put in the correct change and put in D4, I get my Cheetos. I deserve my Cheetos, okay? And we've all felt the rage of correct change, D4, and the Cheetos get stuck. It's unjust, right? It's a product of the fall. So um, when we we do the questions in reverse and we become fourth question people, we simply go, okay, well, what I do um, makes me who I am, which twists God's arm to do certain things for me because this is who I think God is. So it works both ways, right? So I do good things, therefore I'm a good person, therefore God should bless me because God's a vending machine. Or I do a bad thing, therefore I'm a bad person and I expect God to curse me because he's the same vending machine God. And now that one crushes us, right? So the the irony is that liberalism doesn't work all that differently. It's just a nuanced difference to where um, what I do is kind of like what I want to do becomes who I am. So I take on the identity of activity that I have decided I want to partake in and that's who I am now. And, and God would bless whatever I am because whatever I do tells me who I am and God's the kind of God who would bless whatever I am. So God just blesses. There's no cursing. It's just blessing on blessing on blessing. And, and so that makes God this kind of like doddering old grandpa who goes, yeah, whatever, just pat you on the head and go, yeah, just kind of go do your thing. I don't really care. Just kind of do whatever. So they're both the result of asking the questions in reverse or functionally not really asking the questions at all. and just going like, this is what I'm supposed to do or this is what I want to do. Okay. So I, I think it's really important for us to ask the questions, to root ourselves in the character of who God is and in the real activity of God, which gives us an identity that when rightly understood, we can live out of. And so Jesus... The king, but the king who served on the cross, which makes us first served people, but then servants as well as we take on his identity. And so we ought to serve. So a fourth question sermon just goes, okay, guys, we should serve because we ought to serve because Jesus served. So we should serve. Now here's some ways to serve. And you'd all go out and find a soup kitchen and it would be fine for a while but then you'd stop because it wouldn't be interesting anymore or it wouldn't fit your schedule anymore. And it would lack any kind of deep conviction about what ought to be in the world. And it would just be simply a legalism, a shame-driven, this is what I'm supposed to do, or I want to be this kind of person. I want other people to see that I'm this kind of person, but isn't rooted in any kind of everlasting truth about who God is. And so it will wane and you'll stop. We have to root our activity in that truth about who God is, in his identity. So here's my thesis for this morning. We will never serve like Jesus. We will never serve like Jesus until we see like Jesus. We will never serve like Jesus until we see like Jesus. So note takers, write that one down. That's a good one you're going to want that later. What do we see? In this passage, we see three things because it's a sermon. We see the way God saw people, the way he saw pain, and the way he saw power. It's alliterated too. You'll never forget it now. Uh, Luke 8 Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Luke does uh, a really interesting thing here where he weaves two stories together that are certainly happening chronologically, but the way he tells them, weaves them together in such a way that's meant to draw our attention to both the differences and similarities in the story. So he starts kind of the A story about a man named Jairus and his daughter's illness, and then interjects this B story about the woman who was bleeding and then finishes Up with Jairus' story. So we're meant to see kind of how they go together and are juxtaposed with one another. So the first thing Jesus sees is people. Jesus sees people. Verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned, he was off doing miracles in other places, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, um, if all we saw was this A story, the Gyrus story, and it was separated from the kind of interweaved story, I think we might read that section and not really notice a lot about Gyrus. He's a guy, he's apparently a, lead, uh, a leader in the synagogue, um, but because, as we'll see in a minute, Gyrus's story is interwoven with this woman's story, we're meant to see the differences between them, and they are stark. First, Gyrus is a man. And in first century Palestine, being a man bestowed upon you a level of power and honor not afforded to women. So Jairus walks through the world as a man and has greater honor and value and authority just because of that. He's also a man who's named which is somewhat rare in these stories. Oftentimes, the gospel writers will talk about a Pharisee or a teacher of the law or a man or a woman, but we know Jairus' name, which means he was important. He was important enough to have a name, a name that mattered. So Jairus is a man. He's a man who is named. He is a ruler of the synagogue, so he has cultural, very very tangible cultural power And it says he walks right up to Jesus. Now, at this point, Jesus is somewhat of a local celebrity. And he's got this massive crowd around him. So for Jairus to walk straight up to Jesus and fall down on his knees, we we might read that as like, wow, Jairus is super humble. Maybe, but um, in, in the context, the fact that Jairus walked straight up to Jesus, face to face, meant that Jairus felt like he had the power, he had the influence to be able to be so forward. And then falling down on his knees in front of Jesus, it was meant to convey honor. This is a very common way to greet someone, but it implies that Jairus had honor to convey. Right, like he, he felt like if I kneel before, Jesus will be honored by that because I'm Jairus, Right? So he comes right up to Jesus, approaches him, falls to his knees to give honor. He uh, uh, then invites Jesus to come back to his house, sees that his need, his sick daughter, is important enough um, that he would ask Jesus, surrounded by a huge crowd of people, to divert whatever plans he had to come back to his house. So Jairus either had uh, a, a, a great amount of influence or he was very, very bold, probably the former. Okay, so we're meant to kind of keep that image of Jairus in our minds as the story continues. It says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, what do we see that's different? A lot, like almost every detail is different, right? First, she's not a man, she's a woman. Wow, you guys are killing it. Uh, (laughs) Right, woman who's named what? We don't know. She's nobody. She's just a woman from the crowd right? She, she, she's not anybody. Her name, her name doesn't even matter. We don't even get her name. Probably nobody even knew her name. So she's a woman. So she's immediately already in this culture, a step down from Jairus. She's an unnamed woman, a person of the crowd, just a, a peasant. But she's also been stricken with this, this illness where she's been bleeding for 12 years. So now she's a, 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 a sick woman, an unnamed sick woman, and this particular sickness, the bleeding would have made her ceremonially unclean, which meant she was very literally an outcast. She was literally cast out from society. She was not able to live uh, uh, with her family. She was not uh, able to be among her friends. She was not able to hold down jobs. She was unclean. So if anyone touched her or was around her, they would become unclean. And so she was absolutely marginalized. So she's a, a woman who's unnamed, who's literally an outcast, who has spent all her money so she's very, very poor. And, and probably many of the commentaries say she's been. it was common practice for the poor to be swindled out of their money because as outcasts, they were so desperate to get back into society that they were kind of willing to try anything and would often end up poor and yet unhealed. Like this woman. So Jesus, walking through a crowd, first encounters Jairus. Jairus is powerful and influential. He comes and bestows honor on Jesus and very graciously asks him, very humbly asks him to go save his daughter. And what was Jesus' response? He went. And while he's going on this very important mission that, hey, I mean, uh, healing a powerful person's daughter, you know, you're, you're kind of in good position for a favor here, right? Like, I'm not saying this is Sopranos happening right here, but it's not, it's also not not Sopranos, right? So that's, that's just kind of the way culture works. So a famous guy uh, owes you a favor is probably a pretty good deal. They are walking to Jairus' house, and, and something kind of magnificent happens, right? This woman comes up and, oh, I, I didn't even talk about this. This is the most important part. H- how did she come to Jesus? Did she boldly walk up to Jesus's face and say, oh, teacher, will you heal my daughter? No. She snuck through the crowd, came up from behind, and touched the edge of his robe. That's it, just, just touch the hem of his garment. That, that's completely different posture than Jairus walking up like this. She's sneaking through because she's not even supposed to be there. It's illegal for her to be there. She's touching people that she shouldn't be touching as she's coming through the crowd. She touches the hem of Jesus, which is totally illegal. She's not allowed to do that. This has just made Jesus unclean by their Levitical purity laws. This is all bad. And yet Jesus stops, verse 45. He said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Which, they they say that with an exclamation point, but I gotta imagine at some level, Jesus stops, there's this huge crowd around him, they're walking together in mass, and and Jesus goes, somebody touched me. And Peter goes, yeah, like a thousand people, what do you mean, like, So I I picture this being like, Master, the crowds surround you. Who do you think touched you? Come on, like. But Jesus is more patient than me. Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. That's remarkable. I actually have no idea what that means. Like, I, I can't even fathom what that means. That this woman sneaks up behind Jesus, touches his garment, and this, like, power shot out of him? Like, what would that feel like? I mean, this is just a remarkable moment. Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the, whim, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. Declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She essentially outed herself. Jairus, who can walk straight up to Jesus in public, and, and certainly there is some risk because it's not like the synagogue loves Jesus. So, Jairus, who's a le- leader of the synagogue, coming up to Jesus in public, there, there is some risk there on Jairus' part, there's no question. But this woman approaches Jesus and, and, and finally does get into the same posture that Jairus did. But, but in very, through di- very different means comes trembling, falls on her knees before Jesus and admits, I, I am unclean. And, and, I, and I followed you and I worked my way through the crowd because I, I wanted to be healed. So when, when Jairus comes through the crowd and stands before Jesus, no doubt the crowd kind of backed up like, hey, that's Jairus, you know, we gotta back up. When she comes and goes, I, I've been bleeding for 12 years, the crowd goes, woo, like I don't want anything to do with that because I, I become unclean now. And yet what does Jesus do? He went with Jairus he stopped for the woman. Andy Crouch, who's one of my favorite writers and thinkers contemporary, um, wrote a book called Playing God that's uh, about power. And, and he was, in many ways, my inspiration for this reading of the text. And he says this in Playing God He says, The purpose of every one of Jesus' improvisations was the restoration of image bearing in places where it had been lost. He exercised his power to interrupt in others' interests, never his own. No story shows more clearly Jesus' utter disregard of human privilege. Disregard, not antipathy or distaste. He is swayed neither by Jairus' prominence or the woman's poverty, but by the faith and desperate need of each one. Jesus is not a strategic political calculator, currying favor with the local leaders, nor is he a revolutionary, ostentatiously undercutting the powerful. He is a restorer of daughters, known and unknown, socially central and socially marginal. And while he is indifferent to human power, he is so exquisitely aware of his own power to restore health that the slightest faithful brush with his cloak brings him to a halt. Not content to have power flow anonymously and disconnectedly, searching out relationship with the ones who seek him. Jesus saw Jairus as a son who had a daughter who was sick. Jesus saw the woman as a daughter who was sick. A complete disregard for influence and power and position or poverty. Many of us, given that situation, would prioritize Jairus and go, okay, I'll come back for you and I'd love to talk to you later, but I'm, but I'm about to go to Jairus' house and, 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 and that matters, and others of us would, would, would really flinch at that and go, no, we, we would never just kind of bow to earthly powers. In fact, that's, that's evil and that, we, we don't do it that way. We would ignore Jairus and we would just care for this poor uh, outcast of a woman. And yet Jesus does neither of those things because Jairus is no less an image-bearing son of God than the woman is an image-bearing daughter of God. And until we see people the way Jesus saw people, we will never serve people like Jesus served people. Number two, Jesus saw pain differently. Verse 48, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. I want us to see two things here. One, um, that phrase, go in peace, was very common. This is, not, this is uh, akin to us saying, have a great day, in, in some sense. But it didn't start that way. Like, it's one of those things that has a a really important root that over time and culture became kind of offhand comment, but no doubt Jesus being the, 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 the creator of the very idea meant its deepest meaning. So when he says, go in peace, the Greek there is irene, which is the translated Greek word for the Hebrew shalom. And shalom in the Old Testament is this massive idea that God created the world as it was supposed to be before the fall, and that that was his intention, that that's his ideal, and that God's work in the world is to one day bring about ultimately shalom again, but in the meantime, moments of healing, moments of uh, uh, opening the eyes of the blind, moments of, of making the lame walk, those are ways of bringing about shalom the way it was meant to be and the way it one day will be, and so when Jesus says to this woman, uh, your pain has, or your, your faith has made you well, go in peace, he's now saying, you have been restored back to shalom, not just physically, but socially, culturally, you're no longer an outcast, you've been brought in, because in the kingdom of God, there are no outcasts. And so sometimes I think we see pain as something that is like an other person's pain is another person's problem. Jesus saw pain as a fundamental breaking of shalom, which is all of our problems. We're actually gonna talk about this a bunch next week, so I don't wanna go too far down that and and kind of ruin next week's message. So uh, just hold that in your brain for seven days. Number two, I want you to see um, that sometimes we see other people's pain as too big for us to solve. But Jesus saw her pain in light of the whole gospel story. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. To Jesus, our pain is small. And 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 I'm, I'm very scared to say that out loud because I know that many of you are experiencing really real pain. Really painful pain. And you think to yourself, you're calling my pain small? How dare you call my pain small? You don't know what I'm experiencing. You don't know my pain. And so I, I humbly submit to you that I'm not trying to minimize the painfulness of your pain. But I want, to, I want you to see that Jesus sees your pain in light of something much grander. That it's so small to him that the, the slightest brush on the hem of his garment could take away 12 years of bleeding. That, that to him, death meant nothing. He goes to Jairus' daughter and simply says, Arise. And in a word, resurrects the dead. It's a small problem to him. People whose faith is founded on the resurrection shouldn't be deterred by sickness or even death. Again, it's not to minimize pain, but simply to see it in its proper context. So seeing pain as small is only true. It's only kind of half the side of the coin. The other half that has to be seen with it is how Jesus sees power. In verse fifty. Jesus tells the servant of Jairus who's just declared that Jairus' daughter is dead, he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He tells the woman who had bled for 12 years, your faith has made you well. That there is such power, there is such power on, on offer from God that he can look at death, and say, arise, and it's done. That, that he can look at a terrible illness of 12 years that would, that would push a woman out of society and away from her family, and simply brushing the hem of his shirt heals her. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. After the nine o'clock service, I had opportunity to pray with two different people. And a really interesting situation. One of them uh, lost their job and and they are a very successful person, but this week had lost their job and was enduring real pain. Uh, Another person wanted me to pray for their grandfather who is nearing death and has lived a very accomplished life, very wealthy, very successful human being. So we we have um, someone who's enduring great pain, loss of job, a ton of uncertainty, and someone who has great power and essentially I got to pray the same prayer for both of them. That they would see, whether in the face of pain or in worldly power, that they would see that both of them, in view of God and his glory and his power, are nothing. Nothing. That our pain, in view of God's glory, is is easily wiped away by a powerful and loving God. And that our power, our earthly power, the influence and stability that we think we've built from our little empires is so easily wiped away by the power of God. That what is truly powerful in the world, powerful enough to wipe away pain and to wipe away our power is the true power of the universe, the power that heals at the brush of contact, the power that resurrects in a word. That Jesus is essentially saying, Jairus, your cultural power couldn't save your daughter. Only believe. And woman, your powerlessness cannot prevent you from being healed. Your faith has made you well. I see this idea play out every single day in my house. My son, six-year-old Cole, likes to punch, just in general, and my solve for that thus far, and this might make me a bad parent, but my solve for this has been to say, okay, just punch me, okay? And, and so you're welcome. Uh, uh, and, and, and so he punches me. And, and he tries really hard to punch me. And you see he punched me and then look at me like, did it hurt? Like he wants that for me. And, <laughs> and uh, he used to punch like this. And I was like, no no, no son of mine is going to punch like that. And so uh, I've taught him to, you know, put his shoulder behind it and punch like this. And, and, uh, and so he's, he's getting better at it. And, uh, and so he'll punch me sometimes though. And, and I'll go, Oh, is there a fly in here? I feel like a fly hit my leg or something. I don't know. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna do it." And then other times, I can see him out of the corner of my eye sneaking up on me like this, ready to punch. And I'll catch his arm like a ninja, and uh, and then I show him what real power is. And he's learning. And, and, and as, as kind of funny and, and maybe bad illustration as that may be, it, it, it feels the same, that, that Cole is going like, I got, I got this. I can really do some things. I've got a ton of power, and I can really hurt you, and I can really impact you. And I go, little boy, pick you up with one hand and crush you. But he thinks he has real power, but he has none. He has no power He tries and he wails and flails and doesn't give up because he thinks he can do it and misses out on leveraging real power. And we've never stopped since we were six trying to do the same thing. Trying to muster up all the power we can to get a life that we've wanted, to preserve a life that we have, to solve a problem that seems big. Just muster up. But we have no power. Not compared. Not compared to real power. It's only when you see every man as simply God's son and every woman as God's daughter. It's only when you see pain as a temporary disruption of God's shalom. It's only when you see that real power resides not in our cultural currency, but in God's sovereignty. It's then and only then that you can serve like Jesus served and be an agent of true healing and shalom in the world. It's only then. And we might go, yeah, okay, but what I'm, I just, I just want to serve. I'm just going to go serve. But here's the thing you know, and every single person in the room has experienced this. There are people that you serve without thinking. I serve my family. I serve my kids and I serve my wife more than I will ever serve you because I love them more than I love you. It's not personal. It's supposed to be that way. You love your family more than you love me. You should, you don't even know me. I'm the worst. (laughs) But see, we've experienced those moments of of like real heartfelt, real committed to kind of service and love and it's always connected back to that relationship. It's always connected back to a knowing, an actual conviction about who that person is. Otherwise, it's just mechanical. Mechanical and transactional. It's I'm gonna serve because I'm supposed to, I'm gonna serve because I get something. If we miss that, that truest, fullest, deepest connection, we miss it all. But you will never, never ever see like Jesus saw until you first see Jesus himself. See, we can try to train ourselves and try to go, okay, that's not a a wealthy man, that's a man. That's not a poor woman, that's a woman. That's a daughter. but, But it will never come natural like it does with your family or it does with your loved ones until you actually see Jesus himself. Unless you see that he is the true physician who actually heals and does so for no charge. Unless you see that he loves the influential man but will stop everything for a helpless woman. Unless you see that he created this world for shalom and every pain and sin is a disruption of his creation. Unless you see that he is the one who heals the nobody in public, but the influential person behind closed doors. Unless you see that he is so powerful that the edge of his robe can heal and his one word can resurrect. Unless you see that he cannot be stopped by your greatest pain, even death, Jairus' daughter, or in the end, his own. Unless you see that his service on the cross was meant to set you free, to pursue shalom. Unless you see those things and really see him and make that connection at that deepest heart kind of level, it won't, you'll never see the world the way he sees it. And don't miss, don't miss the symbolism of 12 years in this passage. The woman who suffered debilitating pain for 12 years before her humble faith healed her. Jairus's daughter who lived a life of blessing for 12 years before tasting death, but not left there. You see, grace knows no bounds. The story could have ended with death and been a harbinger to the rich, the powerful, and the Jewish leaders, but it didn't. There isn't a story that cannot end in life because of the interminable grace of Jesus. So come with your power to lay it down or in your powerlessness, hoping for more. But come and be healed. And then, then go serve like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we have been served by you in ways that we cannot fathom. We have been loved by you in ways that we could never mirror. But God, just the same way your service of us, your death on the cross, your resurrected life, all the trials and tribulations, all the patience that you've shown us comes out of that deep love that a creator has for his created I pray, God, that we would cultivate that. First, understand the deep love that you have for us. Know that you are our creator and that we have been made new by you. But then be able to, out of that power, out of that deep conviction about the relationship we have with you, that we would be able to serve and love the rest of your creation and pursue the shalom that you made us for and that you've promised to us got to pray that we would walk in that this week in Christ's name amen